Good morning, and I, it's a pleasure to be able to be with you here, uh, to be able to bring you the reading and the preaching of the Word. Uh, as we uh, continue our sermon series uh, through the book of Hebrews, I ask if you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 19 through 25. So Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read verses 19 through 25. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we give, uh, we give you praise and thanks, for you are mighty and holy, but you are also a God who is near, a God who has drawn near to us in the, the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, that as we look to him by faith, uh, you would enable us to feed upon him in our hearts, that we would consume him, Christ, the manna from heaven, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us hope, that you would give us courage, that you would give us hearts filled with praise and thanksgiving. We pray that you would do this to the glory of your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. The author of Hebrews, uh, from the very outset of his letter, has shown us how Christ is superior to everything else that has come before in the Old Testament. He's superior to the angels He's superior to the law, to Moses, to Joshua, to Aaron, to Melchizedek, and to all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices that were essentially ineffective in removing sin, Jesus has given himself as the once-for-all sacrifice that has cleansed us and removed our sin. And so this is why the author here in verses 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. When the author gives us a therefore, we should always say, what's the therefore, therefore? And what he's saying is that everything that has gone before, Everything that he has set up until this point leads to what follows. In this case, what he does is he set forth the foundation of the work of Christ. And so what he's saying is, since we have this foundation in the work of Christ, I want you to go and do these following things. Since you have been blessed in Christ, I'm going to give you a series of commands a series of imperatives, things that you need to do. But what you need to do is as you listen to these commands, you want to remember that everything that Christ has done for you, 
There is not a transition that says we go from what Christ has done to now it's everything that we ourselves can do. In other words, it's not that God has said, I'm going to invest in you. Here's some spiritual capital. Here's some grace. All right, slap on the back, go out there and go get them. Not at all. Rather, what he's saying is, as you continue to draw upon the grace that you have received in Christ, in light of that grace, in light of the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit, go and do these things. Because it's only through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ that we ourselves have life. And it is by him that we have this new and living way to enter into the very presence of God. And so now, because Christ has given himself, we can pass into the Holy of Holies because we can do so through the curtain or the veil of his flesh. Remember what Jesus said in John six fifty one that he is the living bread that has come down from heaven, and if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever? And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. So in light of the all-sufficient work of Christ, what should we do? How should we live? And so we want to look at this under three headings. First, we want to look at it under the idea of drawing near to the triune God. Secondly, to holding fast to the promises that God has given us in Christ. And then third and finally, we want to think about what the author says about stirring up one another unto good works. So let's think about what the author says here in terms of drawing near. Entering into the presence of royalty isn't probably something that we uh, give a whole lot of thought to. You know, we don't live in a country that has a monarchy. And in fact, we come from something of what we can say is uh, akin to an egalitarian type of political culture. You know, think of it, uh, you know, it depends upon the administration and the year. But so often you'll see athletes who are often invited to the White House for one reason or another decline because they don't like the politics of the particular president that happens to be in office. Well, not so with royalty. You know, when you're summoned into the presence of royalty, you go, or at least you're supposed to go. Moreover, entering into the presence of royalty isn't something that ordinary people can often do. Think back, for example, to the book of Esther, where in Esther chapter 4, Esther's uncle Mordecai said, you need to go, and you need to go into the presence of the king, and you need to alert him to the fact that there is a plot afoot to exterminate the Jews. And she said, you know, if I go in there, uninvited, it could mean my death. But she said, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So entering into the presence of royalty is no small thing. We all know, of course, what happened to Nadab and Abihu in the book of Leviticus, where they entered into the presence of God as they were ministering there in the tabernacle, and they brought unauthorized fire. And so the Lord struck them both dead. And yet, because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, what does the author of Hebrews instruct us to do here in verses 21 and following? Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ's sacrifice cleanses us of all impurities, of all sin, because of his credited satisfaction, that is the punishment that he has borne for our sins, his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, and his holiness. God clothes us in everything that Christ is so that we are fit, so that we are suited, so that we are ready and able to enter into the presence of our thrice holy God. And when God looks upon us, he sees no sin. He sees no impurities. He sees no defilement. In the words of Isaiah the prophet from chapter 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is the way that the prophet describes the way that we have been clothed in the garments of salvation. And he likens them unto wedding clothing. You know, how many of us during the week do we get dressed? It doesn't take too long, I would assume. You know, you just get on, you get dressed, especially if it's a stay-at-home day. Maybe throw on a t-shirt, a pair of jeans, and you go about your business. Now, maybe on Sunday, you, you take a little bit more care in getting dressed. You know, you're tying your tie or uh, you're putting on your dress. You're selecting a specific pair of shoes. You're making sure that everything looks just right. But for a wedding, a wedding, you take a bit longer to get dressed. There's a lot more involved. I don't know all of the stuff that my wife did on her wedding day. I was there. I just wasn't allowed to see her, be around her. But I just remember, it took a long time. There's all kinds of stuff of getting ready. You know, making sure the dress is right, making sure the hair is right, making sure the makeup is right. I just sat there and with my tux waiting. You know, it's kind of like, how long is this going to take? It's like, in fact, my, uh, my, uh, my dad, my dad, when he was waiting for my mom, she was two hours late to the wedding. Uh, which he smoked his last cigarettes. <laughs> he was just all nervous. So like, what in the world is going on? She, was, she got caught in traffic from the hairdressers. You know, everything uh, had to be just perfect. Everything has to be just perfect. Well, imagine the absolute perfection of the wedding day, but multiply that by an infinite number. The absolute perfection that you have in the very presence of God because you wear Christ's garments of salvation. Not a hair out of place. Not a single shred of sin upon you because when he looks upon you, all he sees is the perfection of his son, his obedience and his suffering. And so now we've been invited into the presence of God. We've been invited to enter into his presence Are we going to linger outside? Are we going to dally? Are we going to avoid entering into the presence of God if we've been fitted with such perfect clothing? You know, I can remember uh, going to Westminster Abbey and happened to be there on a Sunday. And uh, as as we were approaching, because we decided, let's go to church at Westminster Abbey. 
it could be an interesting thing. And so we went up and we, as we waited a little bit in line, we saw people being turned away. Uh, but then on the other hand, they would let some people in. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder why. And so I thought, well, let's go ahead and give it a shot and, and let's go up anyway. Maybe they turn us away, maybe not. And we said, yes, we're here uh, to go to church. And they said, oh, by all means, please come in. But then for those who said, we're here to see Westminster Abbey, as in as a tourist attraction, they're like, oh, no, I'm sorry, it's not open. If you want to enter for worship, that's fine. But if uh, you just want to enter to see the place, you're going to have to wait until Monday. In other words, to be called into the presence of God means that it's special, it's unique. Not just anybody can enter into God's presence. There are many that are turned away from the gates of the New Jerusalem itself. Why? Because they don't have the wedding garments. They're not wearing the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness. And so this is something that we have to think about. We should meditate upon it because unlike Esther, who feared death for entering into the presence of the king, unlike Aaron on the heels of the judgment against his sons, We have no reason for fear in Christ. We have the full assurance of faith because we have been sprinkled with the atoning blood of Christ and had our consciences purged of all evil. In the words of John Newton's hymn, Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. And so naturally, in the light of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, we should draw near. We should draw near. You know, decades ago, when I was at work, uh, my boss came up to me and he said, what are you doing tonight? I said, well, I guess just going to Wednesday night prayer meeting. He said, do you want to go to the National League Championship Series Game 7 for the Atlanta Braves? I was like, are you kidding me? He says, I've got two free tickets and they're yours. It's like, okay, I grabbed them. And I said, I'm going to the game. I called up my brother. What are you doing tonight? Well, I'm probably going to go to church. Do you want to go to the NLCS game seven? Are you kidding me? I said, we have to pay for parking. It's probably going to be $25. I don't care. I'm in. We're going. We went. We had an incredible invitation. We had a free ticket. Why would we not go? If we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, why would we not go into the presence of our living God? How can we draw near unto Christ? By reading his word. How can we draw near to Christ? By partaking of the sacraments. How can we draw near to Christ? By sitting under the preaching of the word. How can we draw near unto Christ, unto our triune God, but through prayer? In short, we have to ask ourselves, do I make use of the means of grace and regularly enter into the presence of God? You know, I don't know why, but uh, as of late, I've struggled with middle-of-the-night insomnia. You know, I'll be dead asleep, and then all of a sudden, my eyes don't even want to open, but I can just feel them start to kind of crack open. And I'm like, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And the only thing that I have concluded is, is the Lord wants to wake me up to pray. You know, because I mean, what else am I going to do? 
You know, I, I don't want to get up because I want to be ready to, to fall back asleep at a moment's notice. Uh, I don't want to be too tired the rest of the morning or the rest of the day because I've missed out on an hour or two or so of sleep. And so I think, well, maybe, Lord, you just want me to pray. We can enter into the presence of the Lord no matter the circumstances, no matter the place. You can be driving down the road. You can be laying in your bed at night. Uh, You can be washing the dishes. You can be doing anything, and you can enter into the very presence of God himself through prayer. You know, how regularly do we make use of the the word of God, the Bibles that we have, that quite literally, in a sense, almost kind of litter our houses. They're everywhere. Do we pick them up and do we read them? Well, this leads us to our second point, which is to holding fast. The author gives us a second exhortation. If the first is to draw near, the second one, he says, is let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So often I think we can find ourselves beleaguered by the struggles of life. You know, these past two years of this virus have been the longest 10 years of our lives. They just seemingly last forever. You know, just they've been tough. Well, in the case of the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, they had a tough time too. They were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And Christ, if you recall, warned his church about this. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so Jesus reminded them of this. And so the recipients of this letter were going through tough times. And so I think it's natural It's a natural human reaction to withdraw from wherever you find pain and suffering. You know, the other day I was uh, cooking dinner. Don't be impressed. It was just chicken nuggets. And, uh, you know, the wife was out. Can you put some chicken nuggets in the, in the oven so that when, uh, when, uh, when we come home, the, the dinner will be ready. It's like, sure, no problem. And, uh, I went and put them in, and then as I went to, to pull them out, whatever it was, 12, 13, 14 minutes later, uh, I thought, oh, I need to grab it, and I don't know what I was thinking, and I went to grab it with an ungloved hand. And as soon as I touched it, you know, instantaneously, I knew, big mistake, you know, dropped it. I withdrew because I found pain and suffering. I was like, you idiot, what did you do? Why did you grab this? Why did you do it? We withdraw from pain and suffering as soon as we find it. Who among us wants to suffer? And yet the author of Hebrews has regularly pressed his case. Don't withdraw. You know, to put it in in terms of that illustration, hang on to that thing which is burning your hand as counterintuitive as it may seem. Stay strong, persevere. But we shouldn't stop reading just there. All too often, I think we can misconstrue the nature of the Christian life where we think that our progress rests entirely upon ourselves. You know, the gospel of legalism says, try harder, pray harder, give more, fast more. And it puts us, I think, on an inclined treadmill where we find ourselves running as fast as we can, 
struggling to keep up the pace. And in the end, we find ourselves kind of falling off the back end of the treadmill. But I want you to see the author's foundation, where he places the foundation for the second exhortation is in the latter half of verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's not saying, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and just try harder. He's saying, hold on, because he is faithful. The one who has promised to save you, the one who has promised to preserve you, the one who has promised to provide for you, he is faithful. And so this means that our holding fast, our perseverance, does not rest in our own fidelity, but in the faithfulness of Christ. When Christ bids us to come unto him in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As counterintuitive as it might seem, the more we rest in Christ, the more he enables us to make strides in our growth in sanctification. The more that we rest in him, the more he enables us to work for him. You know, have you ever had an instance where, say, you're on a walk and it's a long walk and and instead of becoming tired, you become invigorated by it? You know, or you find yourself working late into the night, but because you're so excited about what you're doing that you kind of forget about how late it is and how tired you might be because you're just thrilled about what's, what, what you're doing. You know, I often find myself that if I get into a mode where I'm writing, I'll start early in the morning and I'll start writing. And if I get on a roll, all of a sudden I'll look up and I'll be like, holy smokes, it's two o'clock and I haven't even had lunch. Because you just kind of get lost in what you're doing because you enjoy it so much. I think that's the nature of holding fast unto Christ is when we rest in him by his indwelling grace, by the indwelling power and presence of the spirit, we are enabled to be peaceful and restful, yet nevertheless doing great things unto him, uh, producing good works, striving unto holiness. This is why he says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. When you plant a tree in the shade and in nutrient-poor soil, that tree's going to struggle. It's going to struggle to produce fruit. That tree is going to be weak and sick. But if you plant a tree in nutrient-rich soil to ensure that it gets a dose, a regular dose of life-giving sun each and every day, that tree naturally and apart from any kind of striving is just going to produce fruit because of the soil in which it's planted, because of the, the sunlight that it gets on a regular basis. We will hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering if we cling to the promises that God has given us in Christ. Remember what Jesus says in John 15? 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, do you remember what? There were two people that night, two chief people, the night that Christ was betrayed, that denied him. Judas and Peter. Both of them denied Christ. But what made the difference? What made the difference that we would characterize Judas as one who was a son of the devil unto perdition, and yet Peter as one who became chief among the apostles? It's when Jesus told him in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, when Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It wasn't that Peter was stronger or more worthy or more spiritual. It's that Christ interceded for him, unlike for Judas. And so it is Christ's intercessory work on your behalf that enables you to hold fast, that gives you the power, the strength, the desire, and the love. And so this is why the author says, hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering. And so in the light of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, we should draw near with a heart of full assurance of faith. And secondly, we should hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Third, we should stir one another up. The author says this in verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you say the, see the day drawing near. Now, I, there, there are a couple of things here that I want us to note. Three things in this exhortation. First, notice that the author tells us that we should stir up one another to love and good works. He's implicitly telling us, first and foremost, that in the midst of the Christian life, we are not alone. So often this can be the case. We feel as if we're all alone. We not only have Christ who is faithful to sustain us, but we have one another. You know, in World War II, the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, which was immortalized in Stephen Ambrose's The Band of Brothers, uh, had a Cherokee Indian saying that was their unit's motto, Kurahi, we stand alone together. We stand alone together. We stand alone together with Christ and the whole church. We are, we are united to him and to one another. And so it makes a huge difference in the Christian life when you know that you're not alone. When you face trials or temptations, the fact that you can know that people are praying for you makes a difference. You may feel alone, physically alone sometimes. You may have to be alone on a sickbed by yourself. But to know that the body of Christ intercedes for you, for your health, for your recovery, and for the strength of your faith should be something that encourages you. I think one of the things, aside from, of course, beholding the face of God in the face of Christ when I get to heaven, 
is I am looking forward to finding out about all of the people who prayed for me throughout the course of my life that I never knew about, I never met, that I never even knew. I think we're going to be shocked as to how many people have prayed for us. But it's not merely that we are not alone. That's important. We we are not alone. We're united together in the bond of Christ through the Spirit. But what the author says is that we should stir up one another to good works and love. You know, I can remember uh, back in my pre-kid days, that is before we had children, it's when I had so much time. You know, it was a time in my life when I could tell my wife, hurry, let's get in the car. And it only took two minutes. Now if I say, hurry, let's get in the car, it's like, you know, 20 minutes. But I can remember being, uh, coming, uh, coming out of the water, I was racing. It was, in a, it was a small sprint triathlon down in Pensacola. And as I was coming up out of the water, all sorts of people were standing there on the sides cheering. I had no idea who any of these people were. And I came up stumbling out of the water, and they were cheering for me. They didn't even know who I was. And I got some encouragement out of it. They were stirring me up to run faster, to press on. How often do we do that for one another? You know, so often it's the case that we can so readily and easily use our mouths to criticize, to tear people down. How often do we use our mouths and our lips to build people up? To say, you can do this. Don't lose heart. I'm praying for you. Don't respond. As as tempting as it may be to strike out in anger, don't do it. Seek the humility of Christ. You know, how often do we stir up one another to good works? How often do we encourage one another? Second, I think vital to encouraging one another, as the author says, is not neglecting to meet as is the habit of some. Not showing up to church isn't just a 21st century thing. It was a first century thing too. You know, and especially in these last two years with COVID and streaming services, uh, one of the things that I've heard some pastors talking about as I've, you know, I was at a conference this week and listening to some pastors, uh, they were telling me that it's been difficult to get some of their people back to church. They've basically said, well, you know what? I've just found this streaming thing to be too convenient. I've heard of some cases where some will just, okay, we'll just stream the sermon. Let's fast forward through all of the other stuff. We'll just listen to the sermon and now we're done. Now, don't get me wrong. The ability to stream is a blessing. And I think it's helped us get through these last two years. And you have to go on quarantines and lockdowns and and all of the other things that come along with the fun of, of a virus, right? But on the other hand, God willing, as we're starting to come out of this, and we have the privilege and the opportunity to be able to meet in person and to come in person to worship, what the author is saying is don't neglect Meeting together as is the habit of some. There's, there's a lot of theology. There's so much theology here that I just wish I had the time to unpack. And let me at least say this. Our salvation and our spiritual well-being isn't just about our souls. 
It's more than our souls. We are embodied creatures. The way that you can say it is you are a souled body or a bodied soul, however you want to put it, which means that when God has created us, he has created us both body and soul. And we can minister to the soul, but when we neglect the body, there are bad consequences to this. And this is why we're supposed to gather together physically. Because we not only need those prayers for our soul, we not only need to hear the word of God for our soul, but we need physically to be together with one another, to be able to see one another, to be able to embrace one another, to be able to watch one another's conduct, to encourage one another. One of my colleagues at the seminary says that in terms of communication, 80% of communication is nonverbal. That's why when you are on a Zoom call for so long, it's physically exhausting. It's because you're actually starving your body. You're trying to communicate and you're trying to take in all this other information by means that your body wasn't designed for. It's like my daughter, when she had a Zoom session, this was about two years ago. She's like, Mommy, I can't do this. This is weird. (laughs) And I said, yeah, you know what? You're right. It is. It's a useful thing for now, but let's not think that that's all there is. God has made us body and soul, and therefore we should not neglect to meet as is the habit of some. Third, note the overall mindset of the church as you see the day drawing near. The the, the author was telling the church, always be ready. Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do we know that the creation itself is looking eagerly for the day? Are we? The Apostle Paul concluded 1 Corinthians with that famous phrase, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do we pray that? Romans chapter 13, verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Are we ready? Do we live in a manner where each and every day we say to ourselves, this could be the day. How do I want to conduct myself as we see the day approaching? Am I living today as if Christ would return? You know, one of the things that uh, John Calvin did late in his life is he was racked with all kinds of illness. He had uh, stomach ulcers. He had migraines. He had uh, rheumatoid arthritis. He had other illnesses that perhaps I shouldn't mention because they're a bit delicate to describe. And so they would take him, sit him in a chair, carry him to the church in a chair, prop him up in the pulpit. He would preach. Then they would take him back in the chair and carry him back to his house just down the street where he would sit in bed. And they would tell him as he would sit in bed, as he would continue to work from bed. And they said, John, take it easy. You need to rest. You need to get your strength. And he said, what? And have the Lord find me idle upon his return? 
Now, I'm not saying that you have to whittle yourself and work yourself down to the bone until there's nothing left. But I do find it interesting that John Calvin lived with an eager expectation of the return of Christ, so much so that he said, I don't want to be found idle. I don't want to be found being lazy. I'm looking forward each and every day to Christ coming back. Do we live with that eager anticipation and expectation of the Lord's return? Beloved, in the light of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice, the, the author has exhorted us and his recipients, listen carefully, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. Stir up one another to love. Faith, hope, and love. He's encouraged us to exhibit the three cardinal theological virtues because of the the redemption that comes to us in Christ. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. In the light of what Christ has done, the author says, love and live in a manner that befits the nature of Christ's sacrifice. But always remember this. We love because he first loved us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we give you thanks for the all-sufficient sacrifice and work of Christ, for it is the very foundation for our life. It is the very air that we breathe. And so we pray, O Lord, that as you have delivered us from Satan's sin and death, that we would use that air of the new creation that fills our lungs to be able to use our bodies and our lives as living sacrifices that you would enable us to draw near unto you with a heart of full assurance of faith that you would help us to hold fast with confidence to our to the hope that we have in Christ and that we would stir one another up to love and to good works as we see the day approaching oh father Make your work evident here in our midst, even in this church, in our lives, both individually and corporately, that we would live as those who are fervently dedicated to you, to your Son, to Christ, and that we would do so in the power of the Spirit. Glorify us, glorify yourself in our midst, and sanctify us, we pray. We ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.